Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Well, good morning once again, everyone who's in person in Mukunji and joining us in Bethlehem and online. We're going to get started with today's reading. This morning, our reading is John chapter 14. And if you're wondering why we skipped 12 and 13, it's because you obviously didn't do your homework. (laughs) So 12 and 13 were your homework to read last week. And if you were able to read those chapters, you may have noticed that in chapter 13, there is this narrative shift in the book of John. And Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And and it says that he knew that his time had come. And from that point on in the book of John, it focuses in on the last week of Jesus' life. The whole rest of the book takes place during one week. And so, for the rest of the book of John, Jesus performs no public miracles. He does no public teachings. He focuses in on his disciples. And here, from where we read, we find Jesus at the table with his disciples on the night that he's going to be betrayed. And Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and he tells them that one of them is going to be a traitor, and that he'll be soon going away. And so I'm going to start just a few verses before chapter 14, because I think it helps place us in the right context for what we're going to read. So we're at the table, and we're going to begin in John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This morning, we're carrying on our series of that you may believe following the book of John through the signs and the I am statements of Jesus. And we're focusing in this morning on that, the beginning of the passage that we just read, which culminates in the phrase that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're going to see that this touches on an obstacle to faith that has been there, I think, since the very beginning of the movement that Jesus started. And this is how you could sum it up. Jesus is too inclusive for the religious, and yet he's too exclusive for the irreligious. And you're going to see what that's about, as well as why you were listening to Little Orphan Annie in the break. Now, remember the first time I came across this passage in John 14, it was in my uh, eighth grade religious studies class. I was at a nominally Anglican school, and the class was taught by um, the school chaplain. And she presented us this passage, and she says, well, the reason Jesus says there's many rooms in my father's house is that Heaven has space for everyone, no matter what religion they come from. And so I remember she went on to use two different illustrations of that. And the first, I don't have pictures to show you, but the first was a picture of a mountain and many paths winding up the mountain, but all leading to the same pinnacle. And then the second picture that she used was actually quite an ancient picture, which was uh, the image of an elephant and blind men uh, all touching different parts of the elephant. And so what is the elephant like? And well, the man who's touching the elephant's 
ribs says, well, the elephant, you know, the elephant is like a, a, a vast wall. And another one says, no, 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 the elephant is like a great bedsheet because he's holding the ear. And another one says, no, 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 the elephant is like a, a tree trunk because he's holding a leg. And the other one says, no, 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 the elephant is like a rope because he's holding the tail. And of course, the, the point is, they're all touching the same elephant. And so religions are a bit like that. They're all different perspectives on the same reality. And so she was doing something, right? Because those images stuck in my head for, you know, the last uh, 20 years or something. But I remember at the next parent-teacher night, I didn't know this until after, but at the parent-teacher night, that term, my parents sat down with, with the chaplain and she said, you know, Ian's a great student, but he's a little bit intolerant. And they said, oh no, what, what did he do? Right? And she said, well, in his homework, he kept insisting that Jesus is the only way. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just regurgitating, you know. I was a good little evangelical, I guess, you know. But what's interesting to me about this passage is that verse 2 seems most often to be used as the proof text that everyone makes it to heaven. But verse 6 is often used as the proof text that very few make it to heaven. And so I think this raises some important questions for us as we think about this today, living in a modern pluralistic, meaning the, the, the cohabitation of many different worldviews and religions and backgrounds. That's the kind of society that we live in. So we live in a time where we not only live and work and interact with people from different religions and backgrounds more than ever before um, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, our workplaces, but there's also alongside that, so there's growing diversity, but there's also a growing amount of people who would be most comfortable saying, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so they would say, yeah, 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 I believe in God. I trust God, whatever my concept of God is. But if you're going to say to me, no, 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 trust Jesus specifically, well, I'm not comfortable saying that. That feels too exclusive. I don't want to leave anybody out. And so I think there's a genuine question here that many of us have probably wondered over the years. And it's this question of what about all these people that view God differently? If you're saying that Jesus is the only way to God, then that means all these kind, sincere, praying, charitable people that I know, you're saying they're not going to make it into God's uh, favor into God's paradise simply because they're part of the wrong religion? And isn't the religion that you're part of largely because you're born into it? Isn't that how most people come into the faith that they're in? And so isn't it kinder? Isn't it nicer to say that all religions are equally valid? They're just different paths up the same mountain, different parts of the same elephant. And so I think there's noble intentions many times in those sentiments. But the first question I want to ask as we delve into this and how Jesus answers this problem or this conundrum is, where do all the religions of the world come from? Now, obviously, I don't have time to get into that because that's a very complex question. So I just want to say one thing, really, which is, I think, when you look at the history of of the world and the cultures of humanity, and you realize that almost every, well, virtually every single human culture that's ever existed has had a religious component to it, except for a very small amount of 
Northern Europeans in, in, in modern times. Um, every single culture has had a religious um, aspect to it. And so there must be something universal about the human experience that gives birth to, to this spiritual impulse in us. That no matter where you are, no matter where you live, that there's something in the human experience that makes you long for something bigger, to be in touch with whoever or whatever you seem to owe your being to, owe your life to. We have this sense that just bubbles up within us. And we have this universal awareness that somehow humanity is disconnected from the way that it should be. Disconnected from that ground of our being, some people have called it. And so there's a sense that we need to make our way back there somehow. And I believe that the the religions of the world arise out of that awareness and out of that desire to find a way back. Now, there was a movie in, uh, I think, 1990 called Awakenings with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, I think. And it was based on a book by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And he happened to be an atheist, by the way. But one of the most insightful comments I've heard on this universal experience is something he wrote in his book, Awakenings. This is what he says. All of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at peace, at home in the world, totally united to the grounds of our being, and that then we lost this primal, happy, innocent state and fell into our present sickness and suffering. We had something of infinite beauty and preciousness, and we lost it. We spend our lives searching for what we've lost, and one day, perhaps, we will suddenly find it. Now, of course, if you know Scripture, you know that that's exactly what Romans 1 tells us. That although humanity knew God and was created for him, we traded away his glory for created things. And ever since then, we've wandered away from home. And so you could summarize it like this. This is the next point. Religions spring from humanity's desire to find home. And this is where I think we we begin to get a little bit of insight into this passage because Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going away. This is the end of chapter 13. And we, we, we read that Peter, you know, Peter's his most zealous student. He shouts out, well, Jesus, where are you going? Can I go with you? How do I go with you? I'll do anything to be with you. And so it kind of makes me ask, why does Jesus jump from that and telling that telling his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, why does he jump from that into telling them, in my father's house there are many rooms? What's the logic there that he's following? Because on the surface it doesn't seem to follow. Well, I think we have to ask, what is the significance of the father's house? I think, as I just said, all the religions of the world, they spring out of this deep restlessness that we have as human beings and You could talk about that as a longing for a sense of our soul's true home. And Jesus raises the question, what if it were possible to once again be connected, to be at peace with the ground of our being, as Oliver Sacks wrote, 
such that we could dwell in his very presence. Wouldn't that be the satisfaction that we're all looking for? And so Jesus says, that's the place where I'm going. I'm going to the Father's house. And he says, I'm preparing a place for you to come with me. And guess what? There's many rooms. There's even room for you, Peter. There's even room for you, Peter, who is going to betray me this very night. Now, if you think about it, what Jesus is saying there is absolutely radical. (laughs) Why is it radical? Well, like many things, I think we can see this most clearly when we compare it. Uh, Contrast is the mother of clarity. And so if you think about all the world's religions uh, as a way for humanity to try and find home, then they basically fall into three categories. And I've used this summary before, but I think it's helpful in this application as well. So three basic categories, thinking, feeling, or doing is what it boils down to. So some Religions will say the basic problem with humanity is that we don't have the right knowledge. We don't understand things. And so the way to fix it is you need to believe the right things. You need to understand these ideas. You need to master this system of philosophy. And once you do, you'll unlock the mysteries of the universe and God and everything, and you will reach the divine. But others say, no, 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 it's not about knowledge. It's about human beings haven't had the right experiences. It's all about your feeling. And so the, the, the way to fix it is you need to meditate. You need to go to a special holy place. You need to smoke this special holy plant. And when you do, <laughs> millions of people do this, <laughs> and travel to Peru and to India for this very thing, to spend time with a holy man. And when you do, you will have this enlightening spiritual experience that will connect you with the divine. You will reach God through the right feelings. But other people say, no, no, no. It, it, it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel as much as what you do. So what you need to do is follow these five pillars or this eightfold path and live the proper way. And when you do, you will reach God. God will be pleased with you. And so when you boil it down, it's all about fixing your thinking, fixing your feeling, or fixing your action, your doing. And so... Well, in case you think I'm just putting this on other religious camps, don't worry. Christendom has an expression of each one of these things, right? (laughs) The people that say, oh, what's really important is that you know the scripture, right? And and the charismatics who say, no, what's really important is that you speak in tongues and you feel the love of God, you know? And the, or the practical people say, no, what's, what's really important is that you fight for justice and all these things. So these are all there, all right? And so here's how you can sum this up. Religion basically says, I think, feel, or act the right way, therefore God accepts me. Now, I look at Peter, and I feel like he's responding out of this mindset to Jesus. Jesus, I'll do anything. Just tell me what to do. And bear in mind, Peter, out of all the disciples, Peter's the first one who believed the right thing. You are the Christ, right? He's the first one, you know, he he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, the highest pinnacle of spiritual experience. He's the one that stepped out on the water, right? So Peter's doing the stuff. And so he says, I'll do anything, Jesus. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And Jesus says, really? (laughs) Peter, you, you don't know what you're made of. You don't know what's in you. And Peter, 
no amount of your religious fervor is going to be enough to take you where I'm going. And then he says, but don't let your heart be troubled. (laughs) But wait, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, haven't you just said that our entire religious system is basically not enough? It's basically worthless (laughs) to take us to the Father's house? Haven't you just decimated our entire hope of the religious system? Haven't you just told your star pupil that even he hasn't done enough? Well, yes, that's exactly what he's just done. But here's what Jesus says. Peter, I'm not offering you a way of thinking. I'm not offering you a new experience. I'm not offering you a new way of of pleasing God with your actions. I'm offering you myself. And here's the thing. He says, the answer is, trust me. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's also translated, trust in God, trust also in me. And this is the thing where I'm comparing the broad brushstrokes of the ways that religion will tell you to reach God. But Christianity, when you boil it down, the gospel is not really a religion at all. It's essentially a piece of news. And it's a piece of news called Jesus. (laughs) And so, Jesus is the good news. The good news is not about him. The good news is him. And so, Why is that good news? Because it means that there's room in God's house for someone like Peter. It means there's room in God's house for someone like me, someone like you. That when we're honest, we know that no amount of our religious effort and action will be enough to be able to stand in God's presence and look him in the face and know that we deserve to be there. And because the good news is Jesus— we can know, we can have confidence that there's room for someone like me, room for someone like you. And so here's the thing. Religion is radically exclusive because essentially religion says the only ones who are going to make it to God are those who are morally perfect. The ones who have enough moral capital to, to stand before God and be his holiness equal, if you will. Here's the good news, all right? Here's the next slide. The gospel is radically inclusive. Why? Because it's for sinners. The gospel, Jesus said, the righteous have no need of saving. So if you're not a sinner, this message isn't for you. But it is for me. (laughs) The gospel's good news because it is for sinners. And so, I'm not trying to be too harsh on my religious studies teacher. She was a lovely woman and very kind. And there's a sense in which her interpretation of many rooms was absolutely true. Just not in the way that she was thinking, (laughs) that she was teaching us, I would argue. So the reason that there's room for everyone, that there's many rooms and there's space in heaven, that this invitation is for everyone, it's not because all the religions are the same and it's all equal paths. Um, but it's because this invitation it is for the unworthy, not just for the worthy. It goes out not just to the moral and ethnic 
and religious insiders, but it's an invitation that goes out to the outsiders, the ones who couldn't make it in any other way. And so the gospel, this is a whole topic in itself, but if you want to know more about it, just read the book of Galatians. The gospel is not confined to any single culture, any single ethnic group or tribe or, or any other uh, division of humanity. The gospel is the only message that transcends all of them while simultaneously meeting the desires of each of them. It's amazing. You know, it, it really is miraculous. If you ever travel through the world and you have the opportunity to, to, to share Jesus and you find out, wow, this really meets the needs of people in this part of the world that are completely different in so many other ways than where I'm from. And my first, I, I knew that as a theory, but I remember going to India with Pastor Grubby a few years ago, and it was the most different culture that I'd ever experienced. And here I'm asked to share the gospel, and, and the people there said, look, don't use the word Christian, because people have a wrong understanding of that. Don't use all these, and you basically have to translate your entire language of what the good news is. And you know what I found out when I did that? It's good news in India too. <laughs> it's good news no matter where you preach it. If it's in the, the rainforest, if it's in the, the city, if it's in the countryside, it's good news no matter who you are and where you come from. And so how does the gospel transcend all human cultures? How does it meet everyone's deepest needs? Well, the thing we have to realize is that our problem is much worse than Peter realized. It's much worse than we often admit. Because the problem with humanity is not just that we think or feel or act sinfully. When we're really honest, we know that there's a problem in ourselves and who we are in our being. It's not just that we do sin, it's that we are sinners. And so we don't just need, if that's true, we don't just need a change of mind. We don't just need a change of heart. We don't just need a change of, of will. We need a change of being. We need to become new people. And so this is where we get into a little bit more of the depth of Jesus's word picture in this passage. When he speaks about preparing a room in the father's house. He's using this imagery. Um, it's actually marriage imagery. It was Jewish custom at the time that the groom, during that betrothal period, the groom would go and prepare. He'd build an addition to the family home so that when the marriage takes place, he, could, he and the bride would have their marriage suite within the family household. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. He's painting himself as the faithful groom who's going before his bride and preparing their honeymoon suite. And he says, I'm coming back. After the wedding, I'm going to get you and we're going to go and we're going to live together. And so this isn't just talking about, you know, each of us having our own heavenly apartment. You know, this is, he's talking about the honeymoon suite. And Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And of course, you know, if you were there, you'd probably ask like Thomas, well, Jesus, we got no idea where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And that's where Jesus says, I am the way. 
I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you say, well, hold on, Jesus. Haven't you just said everyone's welcome? There's space for all. There's many rooms. Well, Jesus, how can you be so narrow? How can you say that only people who know you are going to enter the Father's house? And this is where, you know, whereas the inclusivity of Jesus is a stumbling block to the religious, the exclusivity of Jesus is a stumbling block to the irreligious. And here's the point. For the gospel to be radically inclusive, Jesus' love must be radically exclusive. It feels like a little bit of a paradox. So let's look at this. How does that work? Well, Jesus says the problem, the problem with humanity, the problem with our souls is not just that we're homeless, it's that we're fatherless. The problem with humanity is not just that we don't know where home is, but we, we're not part of a family. We're actually orphaned. So now you get the, the riddle of the uh, Little Orphan Annie uh, soundtrack in the break, and the title of this message is actually Little Orphan Adam. <laughs> Because that's essentially what sin made us. Little orphan Adam, little orphan Eve, wandering around through the world with no home and no family. Sin and the fall essentially locked us out of God's house. We, we disowned ourselves from God's family. And so when we look at our heart's desire, I, I think you can see this, that when you examine humanity, you examine our desires, the kinds of things that drive us, the kinds of longings that we feel, you find out it's not just that we want the peace and the security of a a dwelling place, but we want the approval. We want the love of a father. And so if that's true, if our real cure is not only to find a home, but to join a family— then we have a problem. Because joining a family is not something that you can, you can do. <laughs> it's not something you can achieve. It's something that can only be conferred to you. In fact, now I've been thinking about this, and if there's something that I've missed, you can tell me. But when I think about joining a family, how do you actually genuinely join a family? And I, I can only think of three ways. Either you're born into it, you're adopted into it, or you marry into it. And so if you can think of a fourth option, you can tell me. But it's interesting to me that these are the exact three ways that the New Testament talks about what it means to trust Jesus. What happens when you trust Jesus? It says, well, it's like being born again. You're born again into a new family. And it also says it's like being adopted and you become a child of God. You become an heir in God's uh, kingdom. And it also says it's like a wedding, that the church is the bride of Christ. It's birth, it's adoption, it's marriage, all wrapped up. It became little orphan Adam and little orphan Eve. The beginning of the Bible is this great divorce. And the end of the Bible is a great wedding feast. And so, even though all the religions of the world 
recognize in different ways that somehow we're not at home, that we need a family, that we need that place of belonging and identity. It's interesting, none of the religions of the world actually give us the means to become part of a family. They simply don't offer the means. And so I have a little story that I think helps us see this and can illustrate this. And um, I want you to picture a little orphan girl and this little orphan girl has the dream of being a princess. And so she longs to be loved. She longs to have this beautiful home and protective family and to be part of the royal family. And so she tries to find a way to become a princess. And she says, okay, well, the first thing I got to do is go to the library and get all the books about princesses that I can find and trawl the internet for princess articles and Wikipedia pages. And, and I'm going to learn everything that there is to learn about being a princess. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand it. No one in the world will understand more about princesses than me. And so she goes, she gets her degree in princess studies. She, you know, she gets interviewed on CNN and NBC and, and she is the expert on princesses. And yet after all this work, she still wakes up every morning and she's the same little orphan girl. So she says, okay, one day she realizes I guess it's not enough to just know everything about princesses if I don't feel like a princess, right? And so I have to really meditate on my princessness, my inner royalty. And when I meditate and I enter into that that enlightened state, I will understand that I am one with all princesses in the world. Right? And so she goes to the, 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 princess, uh, the, the, the castle gates, the, the palace gates, and she, she inhabits the, the space where the princesses walk, and, and she can feel their energy and aura, and, and she experiences, she feels what it must be like to be a princess. And yet every morning she wakes up and she realizes, I'm still the same orphan girl. And then it dawns on her, okay, I know everything. I, I, I feel it. I experience it. But what use is all that if I'm not doing what princesses do, right? So she goes to etiquette school and she learns how to sip her tea and how to wave and how to curtsy and how to uh, say all the right titles to all the right people. And she learns and she does everything that a princess does. She, she cuts all the charity ribbons and she does everything that she's supposed to do. And yet, of course, she keeps waking up and realizing I'm just the same orphan girl. Until one day, there's a decision made in the palace. And the king has decided it's time for the prince to find a bride. And the prince goes out and searches through the land. And there's a great epic tale about what he has to do to find and win his bride and conquer evil forces and and even die for this woman that he's going out and going to make his bride. And then the day of the wedding comes. And and as soon as the prince says, I do, something happens. Immediately, that same orphan girl is now a princess. Through no merit or action or understanding or feeling of her own, she is now a princess. And the cool thing is, Later on, as she's living out this new life, there come days where she doesn't understand something about this. 
But what's great is she looks at the prince and says, you're still my princess. Nothing changes. And there's days where she feels a little bit down. She feels a little bit depressed. And she looks at the prince and she's still a princess. And there's days where she messes up. She doesn't sip her tea quite right. She doesn't curtsy low enough to the queen. And, and the prince says, you're still a princess. Just as nothing that she could understand or feel or do on her own made her a princess, nothing that she could lack of understand, you know, misunderstand or, or wrongly feel or wrongly do could remove her from the royal family. And so any inheritance that belonged to the prince now belongs to her. Any debts of hers that she brought into the marriage now belong to him. And guys, this is, this is our story. <laughs> this is the true story. It's, I don't know why this came over me. I, I think it was the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm walking out uh, of, of the room while a little orphan Annie is playing, and I just started welling up with tears. You know, and I don't like the musical that much. <laughs> and I think there's just something so deep in the Father's heart. God is a father. And his heart goes out for the orphans. And yes, there are the the physical orphans and there's also the spiritual orphans, the emotional orphans. And every single piece of humanity is orphaned until they enter the father's house. And this is a good news story. Because the Bible promises us that this isn't just a fairy tale. This is actually the true story of humanity. This is is what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien said. This is the true myth. This is the thing that when we look at the fairy stories, when we look at the fantasy stories and we say, oh, wouldn't that be nice? There's something in our hearts that just clings to those stories. And that's why stories like Cinderella just are hundreds of years old because every generation finds something there that is so penetrating to our heart And they said, all of those things were fulfilled in this true myth, the greatest story of all. And so the Bible promises us, it's not that if you learn all the right stuff and you check off all the tick boxes of beliefs and doctrine, it's not that if you experience speaking in tongues or doing all the right things, you know, it's not that if you think, feel, and act correctly that one day God will be pleased with you and enter into his household. The good news is Jesus has looked at you and said, you can be my bride right now if you are willing. And when you become my bride immediately you belong to my household. You don't have to think, feel, and act your way in. You're in now. (laughs) And now, guess what? You get to spend the rest of your life learning how to understand it, how to feel like it, how to act in accordance with who you actually are. And you see, it's completely opposite where religion says, if you do this, feel this, think this, one day you'll get there. Jesus says, no, I'm going to make it, I'm going to take you there right now. And you're seated with me in heavenly places right now. And one day I'm going to take you and be with me. And the fullness of that will be fulfilled. And so, you know, a lot of times, 
Some of us need to stop saying, you know, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a Christian. And I get where that comes from. But here's the thing. The fact that anyone at all is a Christian is nothing to do with what's inside of us. It's all about him. The reason that you're a Christian is because of Jesus. Not because you believe the right stuff or think that— All those things are incredibly important, and we need all of those things for a full, well-rounded life with him. But you can't reduce what your Christianness is to any of those things. You can't reduce whether you're a Christian to whether you believe the right stuff or, or feel the right stuff or act the right way. The only thing that you can reduce your, your being a Christian to is Christ. And so this is how the gospel is both far more inclusive and far more exclusive than we would think. It's unimaginably inclusive because it doesn't just apply to the worthy, it applies to the unworthy. It applies to the rebellious spiritual orphans like us, the ones who are lost and far from home. And Jesus says, anyone can make it. Everyone is invited to my table. And yet, at the very same time, you see that these these are not opposite things. These are two sides of the same coin. Because at the very same time, because we're talking about love, love must be, by its nature, absolutely exclusive. It would be completely wrong for the groom on the wedding day to say, yeah, any of you can come up here and marry her. You're all invited to marry her. No, that's not love. (laughs) Right? And here's the last point, that Jesus, the loving groom, points the bride to no one but himself. That's why there's no other way. There's only one way because Jesus is the only son of God. He's the only one who's able to bring us into the family. He is the faithful groom. And so, in order to include everyone, he can only point everyone to himself. And I think when you see that, you begin to see, well, any Christian acting arrogantly or wanting to exclude someone in a religious kind of way, you see that this is absolutely contrary to the heart of Jesus. First of all, because if this is true, I can't take any credit whatsoever for being part of God's family. None. Just like that little orphan girl couldn't take any credit for becoming a princess. The prince did it all. And so, you also see on the other side, Like I said, it's too inclusive for the religious mindset, but it's also too exclusive for the irreligious mindset. And I think when you see the truth of this, you also see that common accusation that you hear, well, Christians are so judgmental, Christians are so arrogant and exclusive. Now, a lot of times we are, guys, (laughs) and we need to repent of that because that's, that's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus used his exclusivity to be inclusive of all. And get your head around that, Right? But what you see is actually, if we're talking about Jesus being the only way, that's not not a valid 
uh, it's not a valid accusation. It doesn't actually hold up because here's the thing. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if what is true is really what he says is true, then how could he point us anywhere else? There is no other way to enter the family. And so if he genuinely loves us, he can't tell us the path you're going on is going to lead just fine. He has to say, no, come to me. And it's not out of arrogant exclusivity. It's his desire to include absolutely everyone, even the most unworthy among us. It's like a doctor who, in order to save a patient, has to prescribe the right medicine, even if the patient doesn't think that they're sick. That's the right thing for the doctor to do. And it's the right thing for the groom to do if he loves the bride, but to allow her to go nowhere else but himself. It's the only loving thing to do. And so as the the worship team comes back up, I want to offer an invitation to anyone who's listening, whether you're here in person or in Bethlehem or online, anyone who's hearing that invitation from Jesus to say, someone like you can make it in. You know how, fall, how short you've fallen. You know how messed up uh, your life is in secret, the things you've said and done. And yet Jesus says, I'm not waiting for you to fix up your, your act. I'm not waiting for the day when you fix things up and you go back to church and, and everything's right. I'm inviting you right now. Come to my table. Come to my wedding feast because I want to make you my bride. You are invited in. And so if you've never responded to that invitation, if you've never thought that you were worthy to to approach God and that he would love you, there's good news for you today because God looks at you and says, I love you just as you are right now. And I want to transform you and make you a completely new person. And that can start right now. Come to me. So if that's you, Speak to God. You can talk to him and he hears us. And you can (laughs) confess how far away you are from him and say, Jesus, I I, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you love me enough that you died for me. Please make me a brand new person today and I want to follow you the rest of my life. You can do that right now here in person. You can do that alone in your solitude at home but don't wait any longer. Come to him today. And if you pray that prayer, if you offer yourself to Jesus and accept his invitation, you got to tell someone about it. Come talk to me. Come talk to the, the leaders of the church here. Tell someone because when you enter into to, to Jesus's life, you're entering into a family. This is not a solo sport. This is a team sport and we're all in it together. And we're here to walk this out with one another. And so if that's, that's you, we have resources for you. We, we want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. We want to walk with you. Because as we installed Delena today, this is one big family where everyone plays a part and everyone is destined towards maturity. So why don't we stand together and I'm going to close this in worship and we'll end with, with song. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are absolutely one of a kind. Jesus, you offer us good news. Lord, if it were up to us, if it were up to our religious moral effort, Lord, none of us would have what it takes. So thank you, Jesus, that you don't offer us just a a way or, or an experience or a way of life, but Lord, you offer us yourself. Lord, because of you, there's room for every single one of us in the Father's house. And I pray that everyone listening to this message would see that that truth and that beauty in who you are, Lord, and that we would use that beautiful uniqueness of you to invite every single person that we know and come across at your into your table, into your household. Lord, I pray over the names that are in these, these boxes that we've been depositing over the last few weeks. Lord, we pray that those who have strayed, who are far from home, draw them back in, Lord, back into your family. For those who are orphaned, spiritually as well as physically, Lord, that this body would become their family, that your family would become their family. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.